Okay. Well, they told me to not, not to forget to turn this on, so I just remembered as I was praying. So, Lord, forgive me for interrupting that. All right, October 12th is soon approaching. Does anybody here have a birthday October 12th? No? Okay, does anybody here have a birthday in October? Man, no October birthdays. Okay, September? That just passed? All right, very cool. So, the reason why I'm bringing up October 12th is that it marks an interesting anniversary. It's an interesting anniversary because something happened on that day that spread like a wildfire in a lot of churches across America. And the date was October 12th, 2004. There was a book that was published, and it became almost like an overnight sensation. The book was authored by a preacher, and this book helped make him a near household name. I'm not going to say household name, but a near household name. And let me tell you a little bit about this book. It debuted on the New York Times list of bestsellers, and it was on there for two years. Matter of fact, in just three months, the book achieved staggering accomplishments. It gained 500,000 500, in sales, it won the Gold Book Award, and a year later, achieved one million in sales. That's pretty impressive, huh? Well, in 2014, it had a 10-year anniversary, and it sold past, guess how many copies? Eight million. Eight million copies. Imagine writing a book 10 years later. You sell eight million copies of that book. Okay, that's, a, that's a lot of money in your pocket, and especially for this guy. But it wasn't just the book that did well. The author became an instant celebrity in a lot of churches, and he became well-known in even secular media. How well did this guy do? Well, for starters, he made Barbara Walters' list of the 10 most fascinating people of 2006, not to mention countless other media appearances he had spread out across media in the years that followed. And so right now I'm going to read you a little excerpt from that best-selling book that sprung him into fame. You ready for this? And I quote, Too many times we get stuck in a rut, thinking we've reached our limits. We don't really stretch our faith. We don't believe for anything bigger. But God wants us to constantly be increasing, to be rising to new heights. He wants to increase you in his wisdom and help you to make better decisions. God wants to increase you financially by giving you promotions, fresh ideas, and creativity. And he goes on to say this, to experience this immeasurable favor, you must rid yourself of that small-minded thinking and start expecting God's blessings. Start anticipating promotion and supernatural increase. In other words, you must make room for increase in your own thinking. Then God will bring those things to pass until you learn how to enlarge your vision. Seeing the future through the eyes of your faith your own wrong thinking will prevent good things from happening in your life. God will not pour fresh, creative ideas and blessings 
into old attitudes. Wow. It's like a bottle of honey just being forced in your ear, right? Just get in there. Now here's here's the million dollar question. Can any of you guess who this person is and what is the title of his book? Joel Osteen. <laughs> <laughs> Raise your hand if you're going to say Joel Osteen. Oh, man, you guys, you guys are well-versed with that. That is right. Your best life now. No, I'm not a salesperson for this guy. All right, but we're going to talk, him, talk about him for a little bit. Um, it has to do with our message. So how is Mr. Osteen doing these days? Well, according to the world standards, he is thriving. He continues to write similar books. And i got to be honest with you all. I couldn't help shaking my head this past week when I came across an ad for one of his new books. And it's kind of funny how I discovered it. So we were sitting in seminary, and I was looking up a verse on a website, a Bible verse, and all of a sudden an ad pops up. And no joke, this was the ad for one of his most recent books. And you know what the title of that book was? Right here. Bless yourself. Bless yourself with the tagline of, are you blessing yourself? Well, are you? Are you blessing yourself? So I want to pose a different question than what Mr. Mr. Osteen is asking you here. The question is this, and this is something we need to think about. Why is it that so many people are drawn to these kind of books? Multitudes, millions, millions of people. And I believe the answer lies in what they're desperately searching for. They're searching for happiness, and not just any happiness. It's the happiness that comes from God's blessings. They claim to want God's blessings, but for them, it has to be centered on all that makes me feel better, makes me do better, makes me receive better. And so is it any wonder then why so many of these people are spiritually lost? So many people pack these kind of churches, and it's really sad. And few of these people who are desperately searching for this kind of happiness ever find real happiness, true happiness, abiding, lasting happiness. Unfortunately, people like Joel Osteen have made a living out of diminishing God's truest blessing, Scripture itself. They use it as a a springboard, a springboard, excuse me, for cheap sales gimmicks that based on that base everything on self-indulgence, and it's a system where God serves man, not the other way around. But today we're going to cut through all that stuff. We're going to study how God Himself defines happiness, and the person who God of all universe, Almighty God, who He says is blessed. Please open your Bibles to the first chapter of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1. We'll get started there in God's Word. Psalms chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 reads the following. How blessed... 
is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God, and honestly, what an incredible message for us. In this passage, God has given us a great contrast, and we're going to learn from that today. And it's going to show us two lives divided by divine favor and disaster. Two lives divided by divine favor and disaster. Okay, everyone here is uh, working, working men, working women. So with that, I want you to think about your work history for a moment. You've been either an employee, you've been a boss, or a business owner, or maybe all three. Think about those times you were trained, or those times you've had to train an employee. And what's true when it comes to training someone? Do you start out by teaching them the bad examples? No. You want to teach them what? You want to teach them the standard first, how it's done. That's what you want to teach them first off. In this passage, God is going to teach us the exact same way. He's going to show us the standard of someone who's divinely blessed. And then he's going to show us the bad example, the person who's depraved. And this is ultimately a person who's not blessed by God. He doesn't have these blessings that are directly from God's care. All in all, when it comes to speaking about God's blessing, there is no greater authority than Scripture. We know this. God is the one who defines who's blessed and who's not. He gives the terms, and it has nothing to do with what we could ever possibly speak into that blessing. And so consider for a moment the blessings that God has given you all individually. Okay, show of hands, how many people have kids or grandkids? Okay, that's pretty much everybody. That is a blessing. Those are blessings from God. Scripture says, children are a blessing and a gift from the Lord, Psalm 127.3. And we should praise and give thanks for these incredible children, right? Yes, that's a part of God's blessing. What about the food that we eat every day? What about the jobs that we have? What about the places that we live? These things are a big part of happiness. Why? Because they come from God. And he provides for us through these things. Okay, through our kids. What greater joy could be than our kids? Outside of scripture, of course. 
But here's the thing. There's a blessing that goes beyond all these, and it goes way further than all these. And it's an all-encompassing blessing that we could say is a supreme standard. And it's a supreme standard of holiness. Um, Excuse me, happiness. And there's one book in the world that defines the happiness that God gives. Because he's the one who said it. And he's the one who wants us to learn from it. But in order to understand this, we have to see the contrast between who he says is blessed and who he says is not blessed. And so the first thing that we'll look at is this. The divine favor of a blessed man. That's where we'll start off. The divine favor of a blessed man. From the very first verse, God makes it clear who is blessed. This is huge. It's huge to understand this. Why? Because God is giving us the definition of what true happiness is, of someone who is truly blessed. Verse 1, blessed is the man. This is an example of a person God says is blessed. And it's his way, essentially, of telling us who he pours out divine favor onto. Whose life, who is the person who is so blessed that's able to get, who, who's able to receive God's blessing like this? So the Hebrew word for blessed, there's three possible contexts where it can be used, or excuse me, how it can be used. In this verse, however, the context is this. It's someone who's directly under God's blessings. That's, think of, if you think about it like this, it's a kind of blessing that produces the highest happiness that anyone could ever possibly have in their life. Anyone could ever possibly hope for. And it's something that cannot be found here on earth. And definitely not in your best life now. Why? Because it doesn't originate from self. It doesn't originate with self. God gives a standard of happiness. And God also gives the standard for happiness. This is the standard. It's the only standard from which a person can ever obtain divine favor from. And the standard also teaches us how this person is blessed because of the righteous marks it produces in this person's life. And so we're going to look at this. The first one is this. What kind of marks are these? The first one is this. His ways are firmly guarded. His ways are firmly guarded. What is it that a blessed person is firmly guarded from? What is it that a a blessed person is firmly guarded from? Are they guarded from financial loss? Are they guarded from any health concerns? No. Because he's not invulnerable against earthly hardships, but against threats to his soul, to the inner man. And the first lesson we learn is this, is that this person is blessed not because of what he's obtained, but by what he abstains from. He's determined, he has a determination to separate himself from worldly patterns, and he has a fixed disposition against this stuff. Look again with me at verse 1. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. 
So the word stand implies an eager willingness to do what? To be stand, uh, excuse me, to stand up for and be counted among. It's an eager willingness to, to want to associate yourself in a way that you're being proactive about all that you are being uh, led by. And he's choosing not to stand for the beliefs and lifestyles that defines sin and the people who revel in it. It's, an, it's an, a willful, active choice. It's a knowing choice. It's not by accident. And it takes effort to do that. And so he also doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Okay, scoffers, another word for scoffers is mockers. And we have another great implication here. So the person that you choose to sit with is the person that you choose to associate with. Nowadays, we can even virtually sit with scoffers through various forms of social media, can't we? It's very easy to do that. All it takes is a like, comment, share. Very simple for us to do that. But doesn't Paul also remind us about these truths? 1 Corinthians 15.33, this is what Paul says. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals, good character. Yeah, it's very easy for us to be corrupted by the corrupting influences around us, corrupting people around us. So we've learned from this verse that a blessed person avoids maintaining what kind of relationships with people that will entrap him spiritually. He avoids having friendly, friendly relationships. All right, the kind of relationships where you will seek advice from, where you'll invite somebody over for dinner from, those are relationships with the world that we have to avoid. But as Scripture goes on to teach us the ways of a blessed person, it's important for us to note that it's not just about what the blessed person runs from, but what he runs to, which ties into our next point. A blessed man has what? Foundational living. A blessed man has foundational living. Verse 2. You can tell a lot about a person by what he or she delights in, right? That is very true. Um, But let me give you a quote by a person who said it better. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 20, 21. Those are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For the person that God defines as blessed, true happiness has only one source. Not many sources, just one source. And verse 2 gives us that answer. What does it say? It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. So what is the source here that defines true happiness? It is the law of the Lord. The law in its purest form has always meant to do what? To teach us to instruct us, to guide us. 
Okay, I think I asked you guys how many of you have kids or grandkids, and pretty much the whole room raised their hands, which is awesome. Let's consider for a moment the implication of this. What's the role of a loving father? It's to instruct their child in life, There's to instruct their children in life. And he does that out of love. That's the job of a loving parent, and there's so much joy in that, isn't there? You, go, you all can attest to that. So if there's so much joy in that, how much more joy does a parent have when that child listens? When they come to love their father's instruction? You want to know how a person is blessed? By listening to God's instruction. Because it consumes his thoughts, it consumes his affections, and that happens throughout the day. So basically, it takes center stage when plans are considered, when decisions have to be made. It's an all-encompassing love for God's Word that affects everything we do throughout the day. It doesn't matter what it is. And so a delight in the law of the Lord and a dependence on us, excuse me, a dependence on it nourishes our mind, nourishes our hearts, and of course, all our needs throughout the day. So this kind of life doesn't fail to produce. It never fails to produce. Even in times of hardship and weakness, it still produces in us. And what does it produce during these rough times in our life? It produces humility, faith, trust. And these are essential to our connection with God. And so if you think about it this way, this is what true prosperity is according to God's word a kind of prosperity that also produces something else. So it demonstrates a life that has fulfilled objectives. Fulfilled objectives, verse 3. What exactly are these fulfilled objectives? Simple. Anything in line with God's interests, with his word. Anything that gives God glory, a prosperous life according to God, he says it, is like a healthy tree that produces what? Fruit, spiritual fruit. And here's the thing, though. Does this tree grow on its own? Does this? No, it doesn't. This tree has not grown and produced this fruit on its own. It was planted. Specifically, it was transplanted. How many of you have uh, ever planted a tree? Yes? Okay, it takes a little bit of work, doesn't it? Especially if you're moving one tree from another place. So that takes work, and guess what? It's a process. And so that's the meaning of the Hebrew word. The original word for planted is really transplanted. And there is absolutely something incredible in this. It's astonishingly incredible. And I'm going to tell you why. If you can, I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 92, 13 to 14. Psalm 92, 13 to 14. And as you are turning there, 
I will try to shudder all the memories where I've tried to do anything with a tree where I've always ended up hurt, falling off a tree, running into a tree. Anyway. Okay, Psalm 92, 13 to 14. Here's what it says. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. That is incredible. Incredible passage. One of my favorite biblical scholars gives us an incredible insight about this. I couldn't have said it better, and so that's why I'm about to quote it. He says the following, and I quote, Psalm 92, 13 to 14 illustrates the meaning here. Not the tree's natural position, where it once was, but in a new place, chosen for fruitfulness. In Psalm 92, the position we have by grace. That is awesome. That gives me chills. We're like that tree that God took from one bad spot and did all the work, planted in a new spot so that we could produce fruit so that he would delight in the work that he's given us to do. That is awesome. So thinking along those lines, God's grace, speaking of God's grace, is the root of happiness. It really is. God's grace is the means of our purpose. God's grace is the cause of our prosperity when it comes down to it. So do you see what's happening here? Godliness is happening where? It's happening on the inside. It's happening on the inside of a person. That's where the happiness is taking root. Joy is taking root there. And all that stems from God and his word. Let me ask you a question. Does this mean a person who is under God's blessing will never fail? What do you guys think? Yes or no? No, of course not. But it does mean, it does mean that there's a consistency in their life. They have victory in life throughout. Prosperity in life as a whole. That's an excellent thing for us to consider. Because God has established that. He's establishing our lives. He's establishing a life that is marked by victory, by the ultimate victor, Jesus Christ himself. Bless you. So a person of faith is prosperous. Why? Because God, God's word, it nourishes them. It produces spiritual fruit. We talked about that. But here's the other thing about trees. Trees bear fruit when? Every day? No. They bear fruit in certain seasons. And for us, the spiritual fruit that God allows us to bear, we are able to produce that fruit in his appointed seasons, his appointed time. And here's the other exciting thing. When we produce that kind of fruit, it doesn't just bless us. It doesn't just bless our families, right? It blesses the church. And what blesses the church gives glory back to who? God. That's an awesome cycle that he's made. 
Okay, now all of you are thinking, well, what about the contrast that we've been waiting for? The bad example. Here comes a bad example. The one who says God is not blessed. It's a sharp, sharp divide. Sharp contrast. And the sharp contrast starts with this. The disastrous person, excuse me, the disastrous position of a depraved man. The disastrous position of a depraved man. Verses 4 to 6. So here God is comparing wicked men to a certain term that's used in agriculture. But just to be sure, throughout Scripture, God has compared wicked men to many things, hasn't he? Yeah. But here he's comparing them to chaff. Okay? Chaff is likened to someone who is not blessed by God. They have nothing to do with God. This is someone who is not blessed by God. And we have to consider that they're not blessed by God. They have nothing to do with God because they want nothing to do with God. They have nothing to do with God because they, ha- they want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with his word. So the illustration of chaff here is, it, it, it gives us a, a view of what happened back then in those times, ancient farming process. I've never been a farmer. I, I don't think I've ever planted anything in my life. So I actually had to do a little research for this because I'm like, I don't know. This was a different time. They, I went to Israel last December, and let me tell you, they still have these processes going. When you go there, you can still see people doing these ancient farming techniques. You can still people, you can still see people, uh, you know, living in the desert, the, uh, the Bedouin as they did back then in Jesus time. It's incredible. Um, but to me, I just, I needed to understand how it worked. Okay. So I'm going to try and I'm going to try my best (laughs) to explain it to you. So farmers, some of you may know this, how it works, but farmers would take wheat grain, right? They, they cut all the wheat grain out and then They put it in a pile, and then they beat it with sticks over and over again. Okay, so after beating it over and over again, it would separate the grain from the husks. All right? The husk is basically like the chaff. So it it, it all get loose because it had to be separated. Then they would do one of two things. They put it in a a big basket. I don't know what the basket was made out of. Or they take a winnowing fork. Uh, A winnowing fork... I think is a three-pronged or some kind of fork. I don't know. But <laughs> that's, that's the one thing I forgot to research, the winning fork. Sorry. So if you guys know what a winning fork is, props to you. But anyway, they take all this stuff that they beat, and when the winds would start blowing, let me tell you, in Israel, the winds blow like crazy. Uh, that's why we hear a lot about storms happening in that area in the New Testament. They throw it all up in the air. What do you think would happen to the good seed? It's weighty. It would fall straight down. So the good, good seed would fall straight down, and all that husk, that chaff, would just be blown away, the stuff that wasn't needed. And this was basically a selection process that the farmer used. And he did this so he could separate what was valuable from what was worthless. 
And this illustration is key because it offers us a glimpse into the downward spiral of a spiritually worthless person. Someone, the farmer, like God, the great separator of lives, wanted to have nothing to do with. And a spiritually worthless person who had nothing to do with God would be separated forever. This person is devalued. He's discarded. That's our next point. He's devalued and he is discarded. Who in this world, who in this universe can possibly determine a person's worth more than our Heavenly Father, more than God? He determines a person's worth because he knows He knows. He knows all things. He sees what's in the heart. He knows their thoughts. He knows the motive of why people seek his blessings to begin with. Bless you. Like the illustration of the chaff, God is like the farmer that separates what's valuable from worthless. Matthew 3.12. Turn with me to Matthew 3.12. This ties directly into into this image of separation. And it's ultimately the end game of this depraved person, this person who's spiritually worthless. What is the end game? What is the outcome, the result of a person who wants to have nothing to do with God, somebody worthless to God? Matthew 3.12 says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What defines a wicked person? Their worthlessness to God. They are worthless to God because they are like chaff. You know, there's, there's nothing good for chaff except for it to be burned. What kind of person is this? People, people that we work with, possibly. People that we see in the store. People uh, who reject uh, the gospel continually. This person is driven about by every sort of false doctrine. And in that sense, they are like chaff because they're being driven about by the wind. Any kind of false doctrine they latch onto. Truth shifts constantly for these people. What desire then has the Lord of heaven and earth? Think about this, the one true God who is almighty. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. The one who has the most worth in the entire universe, what could he possibly have to do with a worthless person? Nothing. But there's another spiritual implication here of this depraved person that we got to look at. It's this they are defeated and doomed. 
they are defeated and doomed. Verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. A wicked person and a sinful person, what do they have in common besides sin? Well, we're going to look at that. They want the first thing that they have in common is their biggest weakness. That's very obvious. Their biggest weakness is sin. Number two, both of these people, the wicked and the sinful, are devoid of what? They're devoid of moral responsibility. And just like Satan, this is the final point, just like Satan, they are defeated. Those are the three ways a wicked person is sinful. Excuse me, a wicked person and a sinful person are one and the same. Sin, no moral sensibility, they're defeated. So you look around this world, right? You have a couple, actually more than a couple wicked people who are in positions of power, um, best-selling authors, uh, sold Grammy Award winners, Oscar winners, you name it, right? They have fame, they have wealth, they have power, all these things that the world is clamoring after. But what have they really won? What have they really won? Nothing. They haven't won anything except God's judgment. And the reason that they are defeated is because they could never beat the problem of their sin. They couldn't do it on their own. It's impossible. They're doomed because they won't be able to stand in the judgment on their own. And for them to not stand in the judgment, what does that mean? It means this. They will have no case. They will have no positional advantage. They will have no sway in God's holy presence in the great judgment. They won't even be able to open their mouths, really. The biggest loss in their life, the biggest thing that they lose, they lost, excuse me, is that they never received true and lasting happiness, which is what? God's salvation. The biggest joy, the biggest happiness that a person could ever receive is the salvation that comes from Christ. All that the Old Testament pointed to, all that Christ did in the New Testament, and all that will take place eventually one day. They chose not to stand with Christ, right, in life, and so they will not stand, so, excuse me, so Christ will not stand for them in the judgment. The rejection of Christ proved, their rejection of Christ proved to be God's rejection of them. And their example then becomes eternal. A person who rejects Christ is eternally defeated and doomed is what it comes down to. A person who rejects Christ is eternally defeated and doomed. So you might be wondering, what's the final outcome? What's the final outcome for a person like this? Disassociation and death. Disassociation and death. Verse 6. 
The final verse says this, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's not if it's going to perish, it's that it will perish. It's going to die. A person that discards Christ inevitably will obtain their final wages in the great judgment, which is dissociation and death. The Lord knows this. And we understand this because he revealed that to us in this verse. So why does it emphasize that he knows the way of the righteous? Why does it say that? Obviously, God knows all the evil that men do under the sun, right? He knows all things. So why does it say that? It says that because here, God is showing us that unlike the wicked, he has a preferential relationship with the righteous. He prefers one over the other. And that is a huge contrast. It's, it's even incomparable to uh, his, how he deals with the wicked. He does this in a, in a few ways. He makes it his point to be intimately aware of the lives of the righteous. Okay? He knows our comings and goings. He knows our thoughts. He cares about us. He also maintains a caring relationship with them. As we mentioned earlier, he provides for us. He provides us the joy we have in our lives, kids. He provides us with jobs, instruction. And he's involved in their lives like a loving father is. Right? He disciplines. That's a blessing because it causes us to grow. He comforts. He comforts us during the, the sad moments in our lives. He strengthens us even in physical weaknesses. The logic here is simple. It's that God gives preference to the way of the righteous because he created it. He sanctifies the righteous and gives them the path to walk. Nobody, nobody lays this out in Scripture more clearly than Christ in his own words. This is what Christ says. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Apart from Christ, it's impossible. It is impossible to live righteously. And it's impossible for the sinner to do this because they are disassociated with Christ. And that disassociation leads to only one thing can only ever lead to a dead end, death. And they can never stray from this path. They can't. They, can't. they cannot do it. It's impossible. It's impossible for them to stray from the path of death. Why? Because they don't have a Savior. They don't have a Savior to remove them, to take them off that path. They cannot do it on their own effort. No one else can pull them out of that. Because only Christ can rescue us from a path of destruction. Many of us can testify to that. I can testify to that. I stand before you and I testify that to you because I lived a destructive path for many years of my life. And so, glory to God for that, for taking us off the path of destruction. And our lives have never been more blessed, right? 
God has been the teacher today, no doubt. He's, he's the one who has instructed us, and his word has taught us incredible things. So how do we take a message like this and add it to these awesome blessings that God's given us, to the blessings he's given us, giving you in your lives? Well, the question is, how do we apply a message like this in the days ahead? So I would encourage you that you would be reminded, first and foremost, that you would be reminded of three simple ways that true happiness comes from God. I want you to be reminded that there's three simple ways that true happiness comes from God. If you have chosen to put your trust in Christ, if you believe his word, God considers you the happiest person in all the earth. And it's not because you had anything to do with it. It's not because you were part of Joel Osteen's book, You Had Your Best Life Now. (laughs) And it's not even because of his new book that you spoke blessings into your life. Those kind of blessings, friends, are too shallow. Those are shallow blessings. Why? Because they're blessings that start and end with you. But you have a greater blessing in Christ because it's a blessing that doesn't waver. And it doesn't depend so much on what happens to you so much as what happens inside of you, according to the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't depend on what happens to you so much as what happens inside of you, according to the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a happiness that God says is anchored to his word. It's a happiness that's anchored to his word. Happiness is anchored in God's word. The truth of the matter is this. Living according to Scripture is not an easy thing to do, right? We all know this. It's not an easy thing to do. You absolutely, positively cannot do it apart from God's help. But the happiness that comes from it is always going to be certain. And that is true even through personal temptations, hardships, and failures. All right? It's a happiness that's anchored in God's word, but it's also a happiness that is also Excuse me, it's a happiness that also endures. Happiness that comes from God endures certainly. Certainly endures. Nothing can ever take the happiness that God that God brings into our lives away and nothing can take the happiness that he brings into our lives those of us who feed on his word that's our source that's our nourishment and so i am going to leave you with one final thing i encourage you to reflect on in christ you have happiness you have a happiness that will never die your happiness won't die Going back to the Joel Osteen illustration I talked about earlier. 
Consider this. Could there be any blessing in a message like that? Really? No. There couldn't be. And here is why. I'll tell you why. Because a message from hell is one that leads away from the cross. There's never, never an ounce in a message like that. Not even a little bit. Not even an ounce of blessing in a message like that. The only true blessing, the only true joy, the only true happiness is the message that leads you towards the cross. That is the gospel. It's a kind of blessing in your life that won't die, that gives you prosperity, that is incomparable to anything you could obtain in your best life now or by living your best life now. Think about that. Think about these things as you go about your week and give God thanks for all of it. Let's pray.